on today's show. The firm I started, Village Capital, we invest in businesses um, like there's a company I talk about in the book called Finn Gourmet. They are in rural Kentucky, one of the poorest counties in the country. Um, and they, if you know anything about fishing or rivers or the Mississippi River watershed, you know that Asian carp is an invasive species, huge right. environmental threat. Yep. They equip people to go and catch these carp. They fillet them. Um, hmm. They sell them. They rebrand them Kentucky Blue Snapper. Um, really? I don't know if you like Chilean sea bass is actually a gross bottom feeder that's been rebranded <laughs> by the, the the fish branding industrial complex. Kentucky Blue Snapper is the same thing. They sell them in high end restaurants in New York and San Francisco, <laughs> and make a lot of money. Um, so it's a it's a successful business. It's also creating people. It's also creating jobs for people who don't have college degrees um, or the people that everyone's worried about. Where are the jobs of the future going to come from? Well, filleting and branding and marketing Asian carp is is one of those <laughs> jobs that's working. Um, so they're doing really good things for their community. They're in Paducah, Kentucky. They're also a profitable business. Um, when I started Village Capital, the goal was to invest in a lot of businesses like that that are right. doing good things and also right. successful. Five. Four, three, two, one, one. Welcome to the Creator Institute podcast. Your host, Erin Custer. How do you actually expand your network in ways that sort of everyone around you will think is impossible? <laughs> well, it, it's not by sort of going to networking events because the people that you most want to meet Turns out they do not go to networking events either. In my conversation today with Ross Baird, who is the founder of Village Capital, he shares the story of how his book actually was the tool that helped him build a network that in a lot of ways would surprise anyone. These are the people who are sort of like Dan Gilbert, who is the owner of the Cavaliers and the founder of Quicken. Uh, you have people like Steve Case, who is the founder of AOL and, and also now sort of the lead investor at Revolution. How was Ross able to get these incredible titans of the early stage investing community to be a part of his network? Turned out his book. That was the secret. And what Ross tells us is the story of, of him building this book. And by bringing these other people into it, he was able to stand out, develop himself as an expert, and in a lot of ways, skip some steps. <laughs> He's a young guy, really, really interesting, talking about the power of sort of entrepreneurship and innovation, maybe in surprising places, places that we may not typically think about as innovation hubs. That's where, where he finds are some of the most interesting opportunities for the next generation of investing. Again, it's a really, really interesting conversation that we get to have. And what I do think is fascinating about it is he pulls no punches about the fact that for him, the book was the tool that opened some of these doors by signaling to them what he cared about and signaling to them in ways that they already cared about. He was able to become a part of their network and help himself differentiate. That's why these creation events can be so powerful because he wasn't reaching out for investment or he wasn't reaching out for sort of any help on certain things. He was just saying, I want to be a part of this and I want you to kind of come along with me as this journey to create a book. Fun story. I think you're going to enjoy it. And it does show the power of creating your own network of collaborators by using a creation event like a book, a podcast series to really bring other people along on your journey. Ross. Eric. Awesome to have you here, man. Great to be here. This is fun. Um, I'm uh, so so we've sort of known each other casually, but this is the first time we've actually got to hang, hung out, hang out live. It's great. It's um, awesome being here. Uh, this is fun. So, so we're going to talk a lot about, uh, 
your adventures and uh, both your adventures generally, but also your adventures as an author. And uh, I guess I'll, I'll sort of step back. You know, you're sort of a, a decade uh, decade into this adventure of yours. Did you ever think you'd sort of be publishing a book that uh, one one of your uh, reviewers said was the best book of 2017? So, uh, any did you ever think that was sort of on your horizon? Is I'm going to be an author one day? No, you know, I um, I came across a line while I was writing. Um, is by Shelby Foote, who is one of the greatest historians. He's a historian of the Civil War. And oh, cool. he became a Civil War historian um, not because he was really passionate about the South or anything. It was because he grew up in Mississippi, and he was interviewed one time, and he said, I always wondered why Southerners were real funny about that war. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, you know, I grew up in Mississippi, and people talk about the Civil War like it's still going on. And right. I was just trying to figure out what was going on. So he started digging into it and ended up writing like the canonical books about the Civil War. And he huh. said, you don't write a book because you think you've got something to say. You write a book because you want to find out the answer to something and you want to share the journey with other people. Hmm. And so I don't, I never thought, well, I'm going to be an author just to be an author. But the stuff I wrote about in my book were questions that had really bothered me. And yep. I think books just gave me an excuse to answer those questions and share the adventure with the people who ended up reading it. Hmm, that's powerful. I mean, it's, it's it totally true, right? I think many times when I get to talk to authors, they have that fear moment where like, I don't think I know enough to sort of write a book, right? A book is a thing. Because I mean, you're, you're young in your adventures, right? We, yeah, all, yeah, we yeah. both are. And so uh, did you have that fear of like, maybe I need another decade in the game before I should write a book. Was that ever something that sort of crossed your mind saying like, maybe now is not I'm too early. Um, I mean, when I go back and look at the initial, I did a kind of an initial outline mm -hmm. when I go back and look at what I thought I was going to write about. <laughs> and then what the book ended up looked like, I learned so much yes. just writing it. And mm -hmm. I think writing a book makes you, um, be really like, really make your arguments with a lot of integrity. You can, mm -hmm. you know, you, I can shoot off, you know, a half formed opinion here with you and it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, well, it matters. I would, you know, I'm going to hold you to this yeah. and we're going to have bets about it down the road, but, but we, can, we, can, we can, we can just make stuff up here. Right. But, but if you're going to put something in print, you have to make sure you know what you're talking about. Yeah. And, um, I trying to create that, you know, you're making arguments, you're trying to find an answer. Some of, some of the things that I found while I was writing the book changed my mind, hmm. and it and it was very uh, it was it was it was a it was an incredible process. Was there a big? Do you have like a um, one moment you remember? Like sort of some authors talk about kind of that aha, like you said, changed your mind about something, mm -hmm. where you remember an interview or a story that was kind of a one that was like, oh god, like this is something that I wouldn't have learned had I not gone through this process. Yeah, so I um, write a story about. Um, you know, one of one of the things that I talk about in the book is the idea of the innovation blind spot. Is there are entrepreneurs, there are people, there are places, there are industries that are overlooked, left behind, not a part of the conversation. And I travel a lot, I travel for my day job, um, yep. and I would travel. You know, visited different people for the book, and I would always wherever I would go, particularly if it was in a more rural area, like I would go and just hang out at. McDonald's closest <laughs> to wherever my meeting really? was. Yeah, McDonald's is, uh, and they intentionally try and do this in a lot of communities, position themselves as like a community hub. You have a hmm. 
dollar unlimited refills coffee and people just sit there and and shoot the breeze. And I was in Orange, Virginia, which is about halfway between DC and Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. And I was in the McDonald's and people were like, "Well, what do you do? Who are <laughs> right. who, who are you? Right. A guy we don't know. We yeah. all know each other." Yeah. Um, and I said, "Well, I work with entrepreneurs. I work with small businesses." And they said, "Small business, well, Heck, that's all we got here. We need we yep. need you to be here. You know, when that Walmart down the street opened, it shut down these three stores and Main Street Orange is pretty boarded up. And when the Lowe's opened there, it shut down this. And small businesses are are really, really uh are kinda our only hope. Tell us what you know about it. And the aha moment there was when people talk about creating something or starting something, very often people talk about scale as the goal. And Walmart started with a goal of scaling to every small town in America. Right. And it has. But the consequence of that is it's really, there are a lot of communities that are um, really hurt by these things that kind of scale without an eye towards the consequences. So it made me think of, it just made me realize like the purpose of building a business or the purpose of creating a thing is not just to scale, but to scale <laughs> being mindful of, of the outcomes on the communities, the outcomes on people like scale, scale is not a goal in itself. And maybe I thought it was when I started writing. Interesting. Book. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, especially when you look at the numbers, right? I think, you know, when you live in the world of fast growing, high growth, venture capital, mm-hmm, entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. you, you sort of become blinded in some ways to that, uh, pun intended. But then when you start to realize that, you know, there's 20 million small businesses, you know, 3 million of them have a, you know, a million dollars or more in revenue, whatever the numbers are, mm-hmm. so 5 mm-hmm. million, it, you know, you start to think like, wow, like we're, we're leaving out a whole swath of those, mm-hmm. of those humans, which is, um, you know, orange Texas says, or excuse me, I, I was born in orange Texas. Okay. actually. So orange, uh, orange, uh, Virginia probably doesn't think about venture capital and scale, at all, right? It's not a thing. And Orange, Texas, probably. That's right. That's right. Not, not as much either. Yeah. So you you uh, you have a really interesting sort of uh, creation story about why you decided or how you decided to sort of do this book. I'd love to sort of. I read it and it was fast. I'd love to hear, have you hear the story a little bit about the the email <laughs> that sort of led to say, uh, "Go out, son, and write." So there are a bunch of very weird people and I'd call myself one of them Mm -hmm. who are thinking in different ways around how business can be good for society broadly. Um, And I was watching the uh, movie Moneyball, Mm -hmm. Michael Lewis's book. And I realized Michael Lewis has a gift for taking an, incredibly complicated big picture phenomenon that happens and telling a story of what's going on through the eyes of like very weird people. So Moneyball, Billy Bean was doing things very differently than other baseball teams. And now basically every baseball team uses data the way that the Oakland A's did in the Moneyball movie. So I was flying to somewhere and I landed and I uh, found Michael Lewis's email online and I sent him a cold email. It's like, Hey, um, 
that you do this. Here's the world that I'm in. Here's what people are trying to do with business. Here are a couple of anecdotes of, of weirdos like me that are doing this. Yeah. You should write a book about it. <laughs> and Michael Lewis shockingly wrote back. He was like, hello person. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you, you were right. You are weird. Um, but no, but he said, uh, I'm working on another project right now, so I don't have time for this. Um, but this idea has legs. Maybe you should write a book about it. Really? And I was like, well, maybe I should. Huh. And so that was a thread I kept pulling on, and, and here we are. Yeah, yeah. D- uh, you know, you saw this as sort of like a set of collection of sort of experiences from that one. Um, you know, did you think, hey, maybe there's a movie in this? Is that like kind of why you thought like the, the weirdos were enough interest that there sort of was a bigger thing that you, you could see this kind of gaining mass market sort of mind share? Um, you know, if you look at big trends, I think that 90% of millennials care more about the purpose of their job yep. than their paycheck. Yep. Um, two-thirds of millennials care more about what money is doing, good or bad, mm-hmm. than whatever the quarterly earnings statement says. Mm-hmm. There is a um, major battle going on, I think, for the for the real soul of the market. There are yeah. a lot of people who yeah. say um, the purpose of a firm is to maximize quarterly earnings, and we right. don't really care right. what happens outside of that. That's not our job. And there are a lot of people who think very differently. And so, I don't know. I mean, there there is a mega battle for the soul of capitalism going on right now, and I don't think I'm gifted enough to take that <laughs> Into a movie, but there, there are there are characters, yeah. there are protagonists, yeah. there are enemies, there's conflict. Like there's um, more gifted, you know, whether it's Michael Lewis or Aaron Sorkin or something, a more gifted person than me could tell a really compelling story about right. what's going on in the global economy right, right. now. There's one of my an, one of my authors, uh, a University of Michigan student, who's writing a book that'll publish uh, in March called Generation Give, mm-hmm. and he writes on that very thing that you're talking about. It's a sense that uh, young people today are sort of thinking about the world differently and it's easy to dismiss them as the avocado toast generation. Mm-hmm. But the reality is there's much more to that. And mm-hmm. as much as we want to joke about avocado toast, there's actually like a lot of things in it besides just the fact that it's expensive. There's like a caring for things. There's environmental things. There's a social conscious thing. There's a health thing. And so it's a, these are complicated issues yeah. to some degree. And I think it, to your point, there's a set of stories that will probably be told as this sort of just, just dates on through. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a good segue into one of the things I thought was really interesting and compelling about um, your book. And so I want to read a, a little snippet that I found um, that I thought was interesting. And so um, this is in your sort of the forward of your book, uh, The Innovation Blind Spot. And, and what you write is the blind spot. We artificially separate our jobs and our careers from our values. In this book, uh, in this book I'll argue that when we integrate what we do with why we do it, we get better results. Uh, so... Talk about that is sort of this sense because you are sort of you know an embodiment of of that that you figured out how to how to do this and you call this a little bit in the book the the one pocket two pocket problem. What, can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about that concept of like one pocket two pocket and sort of what that the bigger idea is that you're sort of talking about with that that concept? Yeah. So um, the firm I started, Village Capital, we invest in businesses um, like. There's a company I talk about in the book called Finn Gourmet. They are in rural Kentucky, one of the poorest counties in the country. Um, and they, if you know anything about fishing or rivers or the Mississippi River watershed, 
you know that Asian carp is an invasive species, huge right. environmental threat. Yep. They equip people to go and catch these carp. They fillet them. Um, hmm. They sell them. They rebrand them Kentucky Blue Snapper. Uh, really? I don't even like Chilean sea bass is actually a gross bottom feeder that's been rebranded <laughs> by the, the the fish branding industrial complex. Kentucky Blue Snapper is the same thing. They sell them in high end restaurants in New York and San Francisco, hmm. and make a lot of money. Um, so it's a it's a successful business. It's also creating people. It's also creating jobs for people who don't have college degrees um, or the people that everyone's worried about. Where are the jobs of the future going to come from? Well, filleting and branding and marketing Asian carp is is one of those hmm. jobs that's working. Um, so they're doing really good things for their community. They're in Paducah, Kentucky. They're also a profitable business. Um, when I started Village Capital, the goal was to invest in a lot of businesses like that that are right. doing good things and also right. successful. Um, and I pitched a guy who was a very successful entrepreneur, um, and he said to me, uh, you know, young man, I got two pockets. I asked him for money to invest in, in yeah. my fund and our companies. And he said, you know, young man, I got two pockets. With one pocket, I make as much money as I can. Then take what I have left over, I put it in my other pocket, and we give that all away. Hmm. What pocket are you asking me about here? Interesting. And he's like, if, if you're asking me for the money making pocket, why are you talking about all the jobs and all these things that you know that seem kind of socially good? I don't care. Um, wow. And if you care about that social good, good for you. Don't talk to me about business. Don't talk to me about investment. You should mm-hmm. ask me for a grant. So he didn't end up funding either. He, did, <laughs> I, he was. I was. He's like, you got no pockets, um, right? <laughs> but when I, when I, yeah, I had no, nothing in my pocket coming out of that. But I, I said to him, you know, I see it a bit differently. I think that. Hmm. There's no way to separate the good or the bad things that a business does from society. And also you can't say that, you know, government lives in a vacuum or the nonprofit world lives in a vacuum. The business world has massive effects on that. So you need to blend the two pockets in into one if you're gonna have a realistic look at the world. Hmm. Hmm. And did you uh, did that change the way you started started to operate since then? I mean, do yeah. you and how? I mean, I think we're, I think people are binary thinkers. Like either this is good for business or it's not, or yep. this is a nice thing to do or it's not. And I think that it's so much more complicated to hold two ideas in your mind at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But to say with everything we do, we need to consider what are the business outcomes? What are the, non-business outcomes and those are considerations we make at the same time. I think that mm-hmm. is very much how I think. And and it's, you know, it's really, really complicated. So Village yeah. Capital the organization I founded has a nonprofit that does things that are really important and not as monetizable. We have an investment fund that makes investments and it's purely for profit. And mm-hmm. so sometimes it means you need to create weird structures so different things can live in different places. That that's super complicated, but it's right. it's um that one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is when we talk about innovation, a lot of people talk about what the next big thing is, like AI or machine learning or blockchain, like right. what's the next big tech. Um, but actually, how we innovate is as important as what we look for. Mm-hmm. So to say, listen, if we live in a one pocket world, then maybe we actually need to create a hybrid of a nonprofit and a for-profit that doesn't look like anything anyone started before because mm-hmm. that fits the world better. And mm-hmm. that that's the kind of innovation we need. Hmm. And and so in some ways it's maybe not 
you know, one shouldn't be surprised that Steve Case, who writes the Ford in your book, is sort of a, a fan of this because I think he's mm-hmm. sort of doing things that I would I would say are pretty one pocket. You know, in some ways, yeah. he's he's using different entities: the Case Foundation, the uh, sort of Revolution, and and Rise of the West. What, what is your thought on is sort of that effort? Which to to you know, for those that don't know, they're sort of Steve has really taken this battle of Rise of the Rest. The you you talk about this the pockets of business opportunities, innovation opportunities outside of the big three innovation hubs. Um, what has it been like to sort of watch Steve as in some ways sort of a, a, an example to others um, in, in his endeavors? Yeah, so, you know, if Steve were here, he would say um, that he would, he would tell you because he, he tells anyone, um, he, he tell you know, he's, he's like a modern day Johnny Appleseed <laughs> crossing the country, Coming up with a different vision for how the world should be, and 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 scattering seeds to yep. anyone who listen. And so Steve would say, seventy eight percent of venture capital startup investment goes to three states: New York, Massachusetts, California. Um, one of the things that I learned when I was writing the book, um, a lot of people would say, "Well, that's you know, economics, free market, money flows to its best uses." That's because 78% of the good people are in those three states. Peter Thiel, um, founder of PayPal, said that. If you're very, very smart, you live in New York or you live in San Francisco, and Hmm. everyone else can, you know. Screw off, yeah. Yeah. Um, But if you look into it, um, the companies that are not in those three states that have made money as startups are making as much money as companies that are in those three states. Hmm. But you buy in, you make your investment at half the price. So basically what it means is is the great companies are rising everywhere and there's about a 50% undervaluing of companies in the middle of the country. So Steve's argument about um, reshuffling venture capital is very much a one-pocket argument. He's saying it's not just the right right thing to do, but it is. Like We have massive inequality in society, and it's really important to create a more level playing field. You're also very stupid (laughs) if you don't do this, because you're paying double what you could be paying to Mm -hmm. invest in a great company. So um, making both of those arguments together is really important. Yeah, that's that's fast. Did you... you did you sort of know his model as you're writing the book? Was it something that you kind of were like saying, I see this Steve as an example and other people as an example. Like, did you see to gather the set of people that were kind of, you were modeling what you were doing on out there? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of people. Um, and Steve has been an amazing mentor, um, and friend of mine. And I, you know, he launched a bus tour around this rise of the rest idea. And I've, traveled with him on almost every bus tour. And so a lot of the insights in the book came from going to 20 cities and, yep. and spending lots of time there. Um, but, you know, there's another... You didn't actually sleep on the bus, did you? I know we didn't. We, we, would, <laughs> we, we had some long nights. We had yeah. some almost overnight drives. But I, can, I can imagine just... There were just a lot a, of us packed in a small bus. Yeah, there's um, a lot of humans on that bus to be, to be sleeping yeah. on it. It's not uh, like tour. So, but there was... Uh, um, you know, there are a lot of people that are doing very specific things that I talk about in the book and I tell their stories. And one story that sticks out to me, um, Dan Gilbert, um, mm-hmm. who's the founder of Quicken Loans, yep. um, has been an amazing advocate for Detroit. Right. He's bought a right. lot. He's, used, he's put most of his 
personal money into Detroit as, as a one pocket yeah. investment. He's bought real estate. He's done really good civic things. He moved the 19,000 employees of Quicken Loans from the suburbs into the city right, after the right. recession. These are all yeah. one pocket he, And he gets kind of a bad rap sometimes because people don't always know he's also the owner of the Cavs and like yes. he's the Comic Sans uh, sort of yeah, writer. But, but like it's sort of, it's funny if, you know, because I sort of have studied him as just this guy who's really saying there's a one pocket opportunity to make Detroit better. And, you know, he's a capitalist. He wants to make Mm -hmm. more money, but he realizes Mm -hmm. Detroit is an undervalued asset. We can do certain things. But uh, it's sort of crazy when you see the mass market perception is this guy who's a terrible, you know, manager and blah, blah, blah. You know, he's doesn't like sports. And you're like, dude, this guy is sort of doing some crazy, amazing things. So it's funny to hear, you know, see Dan Gilbert as this, (laughs) people undervalue him as an asset, I think, sometimes because of that sports persona. It's really interesting because, um, so I was in Detroit and I spent time with Dan for the book and spent time with his team. And one of Dan's colleagues was taking me on a tour around Detroit. And this guy is not involved in the real estate company at all. But we're walking past this building and it's a bus terminal that they're renovating and turning into something that's going to be cool. I don't mm-hmm. know what they're going to do with it. And the clock was out of, uh, the clock was not working. Mm-hmm. And he calls, this this guy in the street, Bruce, calls the real estate management company that manages that building. And he says, you need to fix the clock. And um, I said, what was that? He goes, well, you're from Detroit. We don't want you coming to town and saying, Ah, oh, Detroit is so hmm. backwards. Like this bankrupt city has clocks that don't work. Like every all of those little details. It's like, well, it's not you're you don't work for the real estate company. Why did you do that? And he said that, you know, Dan has this mantra, we are the they. When you're trying to improve something, hmm. people will very often say, Well, they should do something about it. They really right. should fix that clock. Right. But you are the they in any in, in your class, in your community, in your dorm, in your apartment building, when you go home, like if you say they should do that, you can be they. And so one of the things um, that you notice about the family of companies in the ecosystem that Dan is operating within is, is, is there's this intentional culture of, you know, I am responsible for hmm. the ultimate success. However, I am one of the things that I saw in Detroit, and this gets back to people like, like Steve case, you know, I, talked to Dan's team and said, I'd like to interview him for the book. And they said, well, what are you talking about? And they said, we get a lot of articles written about how great Dan Gilbert is for Detroit. And people want to tell that story. And when I talked to Danny, they, they said, and I said, no, I'm actually telling a story of like 30 different people that are like Steve Case and Dan Gilbert and um, other people I mentioned, like Kim Jordan mm-hmm. in Colorado, who started New Belgium, which is a hundred percent employee right. and company, amazing company. I go on and on. And they're like, oh, that's really interesting because, and Dan said, I don't want your takeaway from Detroit to be Dan's doing something amazing. I want the takeaway to be, there are lots of people like Dan that are doing Mm. amazing things in their own community. What that looks like with a beer company in Colorado is different than downtown Detroit is different than venture capital in DC. And so there's a body of work of lots of people like Kim and Dan and Steve that are um, all solving the same problem, which I think is illuminating the blind spots in our society and all yeah. doing it in different different ways. It's kind of amazing to even to hear you speak about it too. I mean, it's sort of, an, you, you almost sort of, sort of undersell this, but it was sort of an excuse for you to meet and hang out with some 
pretty amazing people, right? I mean, like, yeah. you know, Steve is busy, Dan's busy. I'm sure all these people are super busy, but when you come to them saying, listen, I've got a, a new way to talk about it. Was it, did you realize that this would sort of change your stature in some ways in these sort of circles at all? Or did, was that sort of a, a, an accidental benefit? Um, I think, I think it was an accidental benefit. I, I, yeah. I think that people were more interested in the story than I thought they would be. Yeah. You know, if I were a college student and I were writing a book, yeah. I would make a list of who are all the interesting people that I'd love to spend 15 minutes with. Right. Um, and I would ask to interview him for the book, yeah. even if only to get an excuse. Right. I, would, I would say that um, people were incredibly excited about the idea of what I was doing mm-hmm. and were very generous with their time. But I would say almost to a T, one of the most common questions I would get asked by very busy people, you know, people who run big companies was who else have you interviewed? What else are you learning out there? Like the, the, the people that you're interviewing are going to be as interested in what you're seeing out there as they will be pontificating about what they know. Actually. So the guy, you know, so at the top of this, Will McDonald was, uh, you know, interviewing his book is about sort of millennials have a, distrust of the market. And so they're investing yeah. in alternative assets. And so he's doing a new version of it that includes Bitcoin, a bigger talk, surprise, surprise on Bitcoin. But um, he said sort of the uh, something similar when he was then, he went out to interview and he was interviewing at a venture capital firm and they asked him, well, you know, I wrote a book and they're like, well, who did you interview? And he's like, well, I interviewed uh, the founder of SoFi and the founder of Prosper. They're like, wait a second here. Like, we want you because you figured out how to get in touch with those people, right? Like, so it's a funny yeah, little yeah. thing about how these sorts of, the book can be a way to sort of validate your network <laughs> in yeah, a little weird, yeah. weird kind of a way. And people want to be a part of it. And, you know, it's a, it's a powerful thing. It's very cool. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, you, your book has, you know, sort of, sort of this concept written from the lens of investor and you're an investor, but there's a sort of a bigger play here a little bit that you, you kind of hint at a little bit of that humans in general should be looking for these one pocket opportunities mm-hmm. and thinking about these mm-hmm. sorts of things. And, you know, a lot of the folks that take my class and live my life sort of see their lives as this sort of common thing. I'm going to go get a job at whoever pays me the most. And then one day I'll be able to do the thing I really want to do. What is sort of the, the, your insight a little bit about finding those uh, one pocket opportunities for people? How, how do you advise people who hear this? Like, this is awesome. What do I do? So you're a student at Georgetown. I would bet that your life has been pretty linear to mm-hmm. this state. Like, mm-hmm. You need to take these classes in high school. You need yep. to take these tests. And you need to get this score. It's probably every single college student, honestly. Like I think everyone's life is yeah. almost linear. You know, when you're, <laughs> you basically have step by step along the way. And then you can go to Georgetown. Right. And then you've yeah. gone to Georgetown and you've made it. Yep. And then you come here and you have this like, oh my goodness! Like I have been pushing for years, <laughs> right? And I won. I got into a really yeah. good school. Yeah. I accomplished what I was hoping for. And then you say, well, what's next? And yep. all you know how to do is follow a linear rewards path. And companies, you know, banks, consulting firms, blue chip companies know this. And they come to you on campus campus. fall of your junior year and they say, if you are good, you will be lucky enough to get an internship with us. And then you stay here. And that's like the default next thing. And I would say that, um, you know, I'm in my early 30s and my um, peer group is full of people (laughs) 
that have been doing the next logical thing for a very long period right. of time and right. are starting to realize like yeah. there's a point where the path runs out. You get like a knock. Uh, Ross, I got to talk to you. I'm unhappy and you look really like you're doing interesting stuff. How do I change my life? Yeah. And every, and every job that we post at Village Capital, we have scores of consultants yeah. and investment makers yes. that say like, I have now decided that it is time for me to use these yes. skills that I have. Yes. And, and, and I, shouldn't you value this one pocket thing? Because now that I want to do the other pocket, it's sort of this like jumping from And they still probably see the world as a, you know, I still want to thinking of this as now I'm moving into my next phase. Yeah. 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 And, and it's, and it's, a, and, and I would say, um, first of all, for the really interesting jobs, the people who have followed the linear path almost never get hired for yep. them. Yep. Um, and the move from I'm doing this job that pays me the most into the finally interesting thing rarely happens. Mm -hmm. Um, because the people who end up being successful, have these diversity of experiences. And mm -hmm. so I, you know, I was um I was choosing between a job at a very famous company that lots of Georgetown students go and work for. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. And a startup rhymes with Moldman Max. <laughs> no, but same same yeah, like exactly. that's the right that's the right <laughs> category. Yeah. Um and um, a startup in India where I hmm. knew something about the subject matter of the company. It was an education startup, but I had never lived in India. Oh, really? And, yeah. Um, but it was a startup and they were kind of freewheeling. But I had an amazing boss. And I would say if you are a, um, if you're a student at Georgetown or in college, who you work with, like literally the people you yes. work with yes. early in your career is so much more important yes. than what you do. Yeah. You might go to Goldman Sachs and have right. an amazing coworker, an amazing manager, and that'll be really good. Yeah. Um, but that's not a given. Yeah. And so this, this guy had started this company in India and he offered me a job and he said, uh, you know, I just want you to come to India. And my job description was literally something like come to India and we'll do stuff. We'll figure <laughs> out, we'll figure it out when we get there. Yeah. Um, I hope you like curry. <laughs> and yeah. And we got there and we figured out, um, there was a very clear need for sales and business development. And I did that and I did that for over a year and it, and it was, and it was a trajectory changer for me. It was hmm. really helpful to the company. Um, but being willing to have a kind of, you talk about the creation event that sets yep. people in a different. That's right. Um, being, I, I started with the company when it was fewer than five people. It mm. was forty years. Wow. In, you know, I developed and created a sales strategy for yep. a company exactly. that was very new. And I think that those opportunities to create rather than consult or advise early yep. in your career yep. are so, so important and such a, such a game changer. Yeah. Creating a PowerPoint deck usually doesn't count. <laughs> creating no. a PowerPoint deck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's interesting because we, um, the advisory professions like consulting or law or investment banking are not bad. No, like no. we, we need them, but mm -hmm. I've also found that people who are, in the advisory professions tend to be better at them if they have created something themselves. It's interesting, um, isn't it? Yeah. So my wife is a consultant and she's a very good one. Mm -hmm. um, and she's helping her uh, consulting firm start up a new 
initiative. Um, yep. But she went to business school and pre-business school, she spent five years working in the startup world and she draws on lessons exactly. all the time about what it means to set up a new initiative from her own experience. And I see, you know, lifelong investment bankers, consultants, lawyers that have always been the advisor, but then are very frustrated because they never get to do the thing yeah. themselves. And yeah. it's, and it, it's, uh, yeah. Why don't you take not- my advice, right? Well, listen, you're like, you just don't have the depth that I need to sort of. Right. You've, you've written me a wonderful PowerPoint deck. <laughs> right. So thanks for the deck. See you later. We're going to go do the real work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's something to think about when you're a college student looking at nicely paid advisory jobs that are really, really attractive, but life, life is not as linear as you think it is. Yeah. It's an issue. You, you um, uh, you you have a section. I think you you at one point I read something you wrote about um, uh, Adam Grant that I think relates into this. And Adam Grant's research about uh, circus performers, mm-hmm. and I think it sort of in some ways fits into this, right? You know, if you wanted to, if you really want to, you know, you want to learn something about an industry, actually go in the industry as opposed to looking outside of the industry. So maybe tell yeah, so a the about, story yeah. I tell is um, Adam Grant in his book Originals talks about research that this professor named Justin Berg did around very often the best predictors of new ideas are practitioners themselves. Mm-hmm. So in the investment world, we have, you know, we say oh, we have these investment committees. Think of the people at Shark Tank. Like yep. they're experts. They have been there. They know what the best businesses are. But Adam Grant would say actually the people who are best suited to forecast which ideas are going to be successful are the people who are entrepreneurs today hmm. who are Maybe not yet experts, but they're out there in the market. They're talking to customers all the time. They have a much better sense of what people want than the people who maybe did really well 20 years ago and have, have, have been advisors or have been you know sages ever since and are maybe mm-hmm. a bit, bit more removed. So Cirque du Soleil found, for example, that the best predictors of the circus acts that the audience would like the most were not the circus masters or the design experts. It was the performers themselves because hmm. they actually know like at a gut level right like they, what things they feel get it, they bigger see it, yeah. roars what things are disappointing it's mm. it's very they're very wrapped up in it so um and at village capital the firm i started we actually apply this to investments so we'll look at a dozen entrepreneurs in a sector like uh, education in the u.s or something like that we'll actually have the entrepreneurs building businesses evaluate each other and <laughs> our investments will be directed by who the entrepreneurs pick um Interesting. the lesson i think is it's very very hard i think to know what is going to be successful in a particular industry or place yeah unless you yourself have had a <laughs> creation event right in that because the yeah. you learn more from taking nothing and creating something yep. than you could watching other people create all day long. Mm-hmm. Well, in some ways, your own journey sort of lines up with that, right? If you think about this book experience of spending a couple years diving in, learning from all these smart people, you know, you could have probably, you know, continued to sort of do these things. But that fact of learning from, you know, all these other practitioners and summarizing this as a book, I'm sure you probably cut off a l- bunch of mistakes that you could have made. <laughs> totally, totally. And also, I would say just looking at these students' books, like I think having written a book and put it out there and marketed it and sold it and some things worked and some things didn't, yep. I think I'm much better suited now to tell you which of these books would do well or yeah. not if they tried to become a best-selling book yep. um, than if I had never 
written a book, but it, yeah, you know, spent my life working for a publishing. House. Yeah, you would know how to invest in which of these books, you, you know, which which yeah, bets you yeah. Make. I mean, and, there are a few of these. And I'm like, man, that is really yeah. really special. Yep. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really fun. Awesome. Well, this is great. This is super so interesting, is and uh, and I love to do it. And um, uh, Village Capital, I think, doing some really cool things too that we we sort of touched on a little bit. But I think it's it's neat to see you practicing what you preach. And I'm sure in some ways it's you know iron sharpens iron. So as you write this book and think about it, I'm sure it has yeah. gotten tighter and more exciting to sort of what's ahead. So it's pretty Absolutely. cool to see. Awesome. This Thanks is great. You're welcome.